I wanted to talk about your new book, American Dementia, but then also circle back while I've got you to have you talk a little bit about the myth of Alzheimer's, your, your sure. initial book. Both of the books have been very influential to me. I found them, you know, really. Well, I'm sure you're recording this part. <laughs> I am. I am. I'm going to I'm going to get this definitely into the podcast. Yes. <laughs> you have been a big significance in my, you know, of great significance in my life, Peter. So and I say that sincerely. Well, thank you, Michael. It's, a, it's been a joy to know you. You and Danny. I mean, I should include Danny, your co-author in these books, well, too. Danny's been a big influence in my life, and he might actually endorse the reverse, too. So the, here, we are, here we have it all. <laughs> okay. Hi there. This is Michael C. Patterson, CEO of MindRamp Coaching and Consulting. At MindRamp, we're passionate about redefining human longevity. And in this podcast, I am delighted to be able to share with you my conversation with Peter Whitehouse. I want to take time to read Peter Whitehouse's bio so that you get some sense of the breadth and depth of his interests and expertise. He's a truly remarkable man. He's an MD, PhD, is professor of neurology at Case Western Reserve University, and professor of medicine at the University of Toronto, as well as current former professor in seven other departments, including psychiatry, neuroscience, nursing, bioethics, cognitive science, psychology, history, organizational behavior, and design and innovation. He received his undergraduate degree from Brown University and an MD-PhD in psychology from the Johns Hopkins University, and he did field work at Harvard, Boston Universities, followed by neurology residency, fellowship in neuroscience and psychology, and a faculty appointment at Hopkins. In 1986, he moved to Case Western Reserve University to develop the University Alzheimer's Center. At Case, he received his master's in bioethics and several management credentials. He is the author of hundreds of peer-reviewed publications. In addition to leadership roles in neurological and psychiatric associations, he has served on the board of the American Geriatric Society and the governing council of the American Public Health Association. In 1999, he founded, with his wife Catherine, the Intergenerational School. It's a unique, public, multi-age community school. He considers himself an intergenerative, transdisciplinary designer and activist. His fields of endeavor are cognitive brain health, integrated health care, intergenerational learning, interprofessional practice, deep bioethics, organizational aesthetics, narrative epistemology, transmedia performance arts, civilization transformation, and play. He occasionally performs as Sylvanus, the tree doctor, is a metaphorical character who asks what humans can learn from trees and forests about health. Currently, he leads the Interhub in the Presencing Institute at MIT and was recently a fellow at Oxford University. His latest book with Danny George is American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society, which is published in 2021 by Johns Hopkins Press. And it builds on the previous co-authored book, The Myth of Alzheimer's, What You Aren't Being Told About Today's Most Dreaded Diagnosis. That was published by St. Martin's Press in 2008. 
I had the great opportunity to talk to Peter about both of these books. In this podcast, we'll focus on The Myth of Alzheimer's. Let's start with The Myth of Alzheimer's. That was uh, 2008, I think you published that. That's right. Mm Mm-hmm. And fortunately, in the new book, American Dementia, you list the five key myths that you feel like you addressed in um, in the myth of Alzheimer's, which is a provocative title. Um, maybe we could just go through the five myths that you list and, and uh, talk about each one a little bit. So the first one was that Alzheimer's is unrelated to aging. So you're saying it is very much related to aging. Yeah, I think... Um... It was a political statement to say that Alzheimer's was not um, related to aging. I mean, Bob Butler, who was a mentor of mine when he started the National Institute of Aging in 1974, needed a disease because he felt that people would give right. money for disease and support the Institute. And there are many other political pressures to do that. The problem is there is no clear way to differentiate um, Alzheimer's from, from normal aging processes. And it, they're both plural. That, that's the other, that's the, probably get to the next one. Right. Alzheimer's isn't one thing. Aging isn't one thing. Everybody's aging is different. Everybody's Alzheimer's is different. So the question is, if, if you're going to make the claim that it's different, what are you making the claim on the basis of? For example, the rates of dementia keep going up. We don't really know what happens after 100, 100, 110, 120 people. Most people don't live that long. But by the time you're into that um, late life, your chances are you will have some cognitive impairment. And even the experts, you know, they promoted mild cognitive impairment. Well, what is mild cognitive impairment? It's, <laughs> is it Alzheimer's? Isn't it Alzheimer's? I mean, it depends on which expert you ask. So even they recognize that it's on a continuum. And now um, the Alzheimer's Association and its ultimate unwisdom is promoting subjective cognitive decline, (laughs) where all you have to do is complain about your memory getting worse. So, I mean, you know, that's the problem with disease mongering, and that's what it is. So to be blunt about it, the... I don't know that this was Bob Butler's intent, but the way it's turned out is that by defining Alzheimer's as a disease people can raise more money for their research about it. Is that essentially the... (laughs) That I think is proven to be the case. Uh, And and the more you exaggerate, uh, make promises about cures by 2025, a claim that the Alzheimer's Association has made repetitively, uh, you know, people will say, okay, if we're that close, maybe my my million will just, you know, push us over the edge. But it's all based on the myth that this is one thing and it is unrelated to aging and it can be fixed by a, by a magic. And it also reinforces the notion that we can solve this somehow with a pill, that there will be this magical uh, pill that will, which I think you're down on the fourth or fifth uh, point. It it is, it is um, it's the American way. And that of course is what we say in the next book, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, It's just, it's just magical thinking about magical pills and, and magical thinking that we can with more and more precision define conditions as discrete and therefore, you know, treatable with that that specific pill. Of course, now we're talking about personalized medicine. And so now um, the doctors are backing off on, well, we we don't want to have one magic pill. We'll have a cocktail of Mm. magic pills that's just designed for you. And we'll have a panel of biomarkers. You know, meanwhile, um, Medicare is going bankrupt with all these claims, uh, not 
quite literally, but almost literally. Um, yeah. You may want to talk about the latest magic pill, which was disastrously approved by the FDA called aducanumab or Adjahelm. They actually increased the Medicare beneficiaries monthly um, payment, co-payment mm. by $10 uh, based on projections that they'd have to pay for this drug, which hopefully they won't have to. Yeah. And the downside of this, aside from, well, none of the pills have worked. And if I understand correctly, from your point of view and Danny's point of view, this takes away energy, time, focus from other things that can be done to help people and to make the people's lives better. That's absolutely right. It's an opportunity cost, which is huge. And um, not only can we make the lives of people better today, but we can also prevent dementia uh, with with public health interventions, which right. just, you know, people don't make money out of. And that's the problem. So it is related to aging. Uh, and I think you were saying it. the older we get, the likelihood of having some kind of condition that we call Alzheimer's or dementia increases. And that the second point is that it's not any one specific disease. It's a, what do you call it? A syndrome, a universe uh, uh, of... Uh, yeah, I, I, a syndrome or a, con- a set of conditions. I mean, the most important thing is to, to add the plural, you know, Alzheimer's diseases or conditions or syndromes. Mm-hmm. And that third point that we, we've already talked about, that it's not really going to be curable through biomedical science. You, we, we have faith that science can solve our problems. Faith to the extreme that you think science will solve every problem. And that's when it becomes the religion of science or scientism. All right. The fourth one in your uh, myths was that uh, Alzheimer's causes an irretrievable loss of self in those who are affected. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, there was a book uh, written called The Loss of Self. And the Alzheimer's Association uses stigmatizing language, uh, the funeral that never ends, uh, the disease that robs you of your mind. In fact, there was a a paper written about the, the zombie language that the Alzheimer's Association mm. uses, where it's the living dead. So you're dead before you actually buy, stop breathing. So all of those are designed to say that the person is no longer there. And, and of course, that's dehumanizing. And it's designed to create fear. Uh, you know, we got, golly, they, if they're going to be zombies. We're going to have to, you know, cure zombiehood uh, by developing a magic zombie pill. So it's all part of that emotional currency that they try to manipulate around um largely people's fears and hopes, you know, so it's like, on the worst hand, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And by the way, give us some money, and we'll find the best thing that could ever happen to you, which is to get rid of the worst thing. I mean, (laughs) and I I really find, uh, I find them at fault, because they talk all the time about destigmatizing dementia, Mm. and rehumanizing people with dementia. And I ask, well, why did you Use all this language that destigmatizes people in the first place. And why do you, why do we have to rehumanize them if we really <laughs> embrace their humanity? You know, they're just right. like the rest of us. And particularly if you put that together with the argument, Michael, that we're all on the continuum somewhere, uh, you know, where do you all, where all of a sudden do you lose yourself? I mean, you know, was it like yeah. yesterday or tomorrow or, you know, it, it, it's, it's language that just distorts, which is why we called the book provocatively, as you suggest, a myth. It's a big, powerful story that just is misleading. Right. Yeah, I've been doing a fair amount of meditation uh, in my later years now, and it's it's ironic that a lot of what you're dealing with is recognizing the, the myth of the self 
Of course, they are very, you know, calling yourself a self is functional in certain situations, but the idea of sort of, I have to hold on to this ego, this self you're trying to dispel. And it seems like, well, that's conceivably what happens as, as you lose your memory. Your memory of your past self may be gone, but you're you're still very much here in the present. You're being here now and, uh, you know, still very much a, a real living person. So it's a... Well, it's, it's very interesting you say that because I actually am an amateur Buddhist. Um, the Dalai Lama is kind of chuckling at me when he says that. <laughs> well, because, uh, you know, this notion that you love things is the root Latin of the word amateur. And this guess again foreshadows the next book that in America, we think it's all about independence and autonomy right. and, and the solitary self. Um, whereas there are other cultures, let alone faith traditions that suggest that we are interdependent and um, interbeing. And it's all about connectivity, which is why I, your readership don't know this, but, but they're listening to a tree doctor. Uh, they're listening to somebody who actually has been teaching this week uh, internationally, but also at Case Western Reserve around climate action. And so this idea that we humans have a lot to learn from other living creatures about interconnectivity and that trees are a very important part of that a broader lesson. So my performance character, dressed as you can see, you can see, and they can't, <laughs> oh, yeah. in a tree doctor t-shirt, uh, has a yin and yang on it embedded uh. in an oak tree. So your your introduction of um, Eastern concepts allowed me to say there are a lot, there's a lot more to understanding humanity than we sometimes, uh, I think, find in the West. Time for a little Eastern enlightenment. Well, you continue to amaze me in the uh, breadth and depth of your, your interests and your expertise. So, uh, well, I'm, I'm well-rooted and, um, you know, aspire to great heights. What can I say? <laughs> That's great. So the the final one, uh, just on the myth, is that uh, Alzheimer's imposes an inevitable despair on caregivers, and that's certainly the story that we hear all the time. Yeah, I mean, I, so I'll tell the story. I'll answer that in this way. So what I really re resented when I was a neurologist in practice, mm -hmm. right now I do public health, um, is that when I labeled somebody as having something, let's call it Alzheimer's disease for a minute that I label the other person as the caregiver. And there was, it was a dual process. And then you automatically gave them a disease, caregiver stress or caregiver despair. Right. In actual fact, in that moment, you actually robbed the person who you just gave the label Alzheimer's disease of being a caregiver. I mean, okay, wait a minute. I was that person's husband and presuming right. for a good husband, I was their caregiver. Now all of a sudden, I, I there's only one of us who's a caregiver. So caring is at the essence. and. There, there's a lawful, uh, there's a whole movement that I'm part of called reimagining dementia, uh, mm. which is about using the arts and the humanities to celebrate caring. And the, the no one's no one's gonna. I mean, my my, my father-in-law just died in long-term care with dementia and COVID. Mm. So I know uh, that that there are real challenges to caregiving. On the other hand, there are challenges to life, and um, we need to help people um, having better healthcare systems, better long-term care. But there still is joy and purpose in caring for each other. And you're saying it's a two-way deal. And by labeling one as a caregiver and the other as a care receiver or whatever, you're laying roles on people that, that are limiting. Did I understand yes. that correctly? Yes. Yeah.
You've been talking a lot about the the power of words, and that was a, a topic that was significant in in your first book. You know, that had a big impact on me. Was you're talking about the the power of words? So, I I pulled out this um, quote from Ursula Le Guin that you had in uh, American Dementia. She says, a lot of people are getting tired of the huge pool of metaphors that have to do with war and conflict and the proliferation of battle metaphors, such as being a warrior, fighting, defeating, so on. Once you become conscious of these battle metaphors, you can start, well, fighting against them. That's one option. (laughs) Another is to realize that conflict is not the only human response to a situation and begin to find metaphors such as resisting, outwitting, skipping, and subverting. This kind of consciousness can open the door to all all sorts of new behaviors. I like that. Talk about that. Well, so absolutely, Michael. I'm, uh, my PhD was in psycholinguistics, so uh, I, I really tried to understand how words work in the brain and how they're connected to images and so on. But Ursula Le Guin is one of my favorite science fiction authors, um, a brilliant uh, feminist or female writer who brought uh, a little less battle into science fiction, uh, a little bit more depth too. Yeah, I mean, I think um, capitalism is all about fighting and battling and medicine is too much about fighting and battling. I mean, even even the, our earlier understandings of Darwinian evolution, you know, the survival of the fittest, right. there's a lot of that in our culture. And of course, that is leading to that leads to wars. It also leads to narrow ways of trying to address problems. So the, the idea that we need more ecological and organic and uh, feminist kinds of concepts, which brings us back to caring too. I mean, it's not about just combating. It's about um, it's about cooperation. It's about symbiosis. It's about Lynn Margulin's work, for example, that suggests that all evolution is not just branching. There's, there's entanglements. Uh, so mm. the way we think about biology is uh, very different, at, at least in enlightened places. You know, the Alzheimer's Association, they all think it starts with the genes and ends up with the profit-making drug. But public health, ecological ways of thinking about things, makes it more of a collective responsibility to address our brain health together. So let me quickly review the five myths of Alzheimer's that Peter addresses in his book, The Myth of Alzheimer's. Number one is the idea that Alzheimer's is unrelated to age. In fact, the conditions that we associate with dementia have a lot in common with the conditions that we associate with with aging, especially with accelerated aging. The second myth is that Alzheimer's is one discrete disease. Well, what we call Alzheimer's is actually a collection of multiple conditions. Three, there's the myth that Alzheimer's is likely curable by biomedical science. The the 100% failure rate of drug intervention so far testifies to this myth. And as we discuss in the second part of the interview, uh, when we review Peter's book, American Dementia, the incidence of dementia cannot really be addressed until we address fundamental flaws in our eco-psychosocial systems. I mean, we need, for example, to get rid of environmental pollutants that damage our brains. Until we do that, uh, we're not going to get rid of dementia. Four and five are related. 
These myths are that people with dementia have suffered an irretrievable loss of self, and that caregivers for people with dementia must inevitably lead lives of despair. I mean, people with dementia are still here, still alive. They still have a self. They are still engaged with the world and are still capable of finding happiness and meaning in their lives. So it's important that as individuals and as a society, we move beyond these myths and start dealing with dementia from a more realistic point of view. Be sure to tune in to the second part of my interview with Peter Whitehouse, where we pick up on this idea of collective responsibility for addressing brain health. In part two, Peter and I will focus on his latest book called American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society. And of course, we invite you to join MindRamp in our quest to create the kind of society in which everyone has the opportunity to live a long, healthy, happy, and fulfilling life that ends with a peaceful and dignified death. Please visit our website at www.mindramp.org, where you can learn more about our work and take advantage of the free resources that we make available. All right, that's it for now. Take care of yourself, and take care of your family and your neighbors, and let's all work together to take care of this planet that we all call home. <laughs>